What comes to your mind when I say Tibet? The beautiful Himalayan mountains? The Dalai Lama? Or the famous movie Seven Years in Tibet? There are so many books and movies about Tibet. No doubt they're wonderful, but they're usually not from a Tibetan's perspective. And I need to say this we're so much more than momos and singing bowls. I don't even confirm if singing bowls are a Tibetan thing. To give you that authentic sense of what Tibet is and what our culture truly is like, we are here once again with season two of Waking Up Closer to Tibet. Hi, I am Benzin. I am so many things professionally, but at my very core, I am a Tibetan. Join me in this brand new season. As I speak to some of the most celebrated Tibetan names who know Tibet in their own unique ways. Ten marvelous episodes with five amazing guests. In this season, I will be having the privilege of being in conversation with His Holiness the 14th Dalai Lama, Geshe Thupten Jimpa, Geshe Dorji Damdo, Pechung, and Reka Gava. So don't forget to tune in every Wednesday as we get. Bit by bit, closer to Tibet. Tashidile, and welcome to yet another special episode, or should I call it a musical episode of Waking Up Closer to Tibet? It is going to be all about music today, and particularly about traditional Tibetan music. The music of Tibet. Is as serene and beautiful as its picturesque landscape. Music is an emotion for mostly all cultures around the world, and I believe it is pretty much the same for us too. Historically speaking, even before the arrival of Buddhism in Tibet from India, we had the Ben tradition, and that influenced our music. We would express our devotion through singing and dancing, and we would do so、uh, to the mountain deity,、uh, sun deity, water deity, earth deity, fire deity, and we would express our devotion through singing and dancing to these deities so that we could have good harvest and be protected from earthquakes or any other kind of natural calamity. If you thought that there is only one kind of music in Tibet, you're wrong because we are tremendously diverse and、um, all our states and you know, our provinces、um, have their own style of music. To dwell deeper into this and truly decipher, decode traditional Tibetan music, we have Tei Chung as our esteemed guest today. 
Daechung is a renowned Tibetan singer-songwriter living in exile in Adirondacks, New York. While performing in both traditional and contemporary styles, his goals are to revive Tibetan music in the Tibetan community and also to showcase the rich performing cultural tradition of his homeland, which is Tibet, to the world community. He is also the co-founder of uh, the San Francisco-based Chuksamba Tibetan Dance and Opera Company. Uh, they've made their debut in Carnegie Hall with Philip Glass, R.E.M., Sean Colvin, Patti Smith. Um, they have performed with U2, John Lee Hooker, uh, Taj Mahal, Tracy Chapman, um, and the list goes on. I'm extremely thrilled to have Daechung as our guest on the show today. Welcome to CDT Daechung La. I am enthralled to have you on. Um, I've been eagerly looking forward to having this conversation with you. I'm one of your ardent fans and I hold you up in high esteem because through your music, you are not only reviving our traditional music, but, you know, also spreading our beautiful culture with the world. So, which is also the goal of this show. And I love how beautifully this aligns, right? Your love affair with music started at a very early age. That is nine years old. You enrolled mm -hmm. in mm -hmm. the Tibetan Institute of Performing Arts when you were just nine years old, right? So yes. how did your journey as a traditional Tibetan musician begin? Well, first of all, uh, thanks for having me here. And, uh, you know, I grew up in India and uh, lived there and lived half of my life in India, in Dharamsala. And I'm very uh, fond and very uh, close. India is very close in my heart, you know. And my love affair, which you, you know, very eloquently put it uh, was kind of not very uh, eloquent, uh, as beautiful as it is, because, you know, in the 1960s, when uh, Tibetans came into exile in India, my mom uh, came uh, across the border in, through Sikkim, and that's where I was born. And we were refugees, you know, we were displaced. My mom was doing road constructions, you know, in the borders. So we were really like displaced and those days the Tibetan elders, you know, my mom's generation, they were all thinking that just three months they'll go back home or six months. And then it stretched to many, many more years. She came down to Dharamsala and uh, kids were all sent to schools, you know, Tibetan school, boarding schools, South India, wherever. And she basically dropped me in the performing arts school, you know. Um, okay. Literally dropped me because she doesn't know what education sending to school means and performing arts. My family has no musical kind of background. So anyway, she lived in Dharamsala and Tipo, uh, the Tibetan Institute of Performing Arts. Those days was called Tibetan Dance and Drama Society. And it was an organization uh, established in 1959. And basically that performing school at that time was to keep alive the spirit of Tibetan culture, spirit of Tibetan people's uh, freedom struggle and uh, culture. 
And so I ended up in the school and that's how I started learning about music and uh, dancing. We were like, not just a musician, we were you know, all rounded. We have to learn dance, music and all of that. So that's how I started. And really my love of affair with the music started after I came to United States more later. So that's my story kind of. Okay. And when do you like have this sort of, uh, I mean, this is off the script, but when did you actually realize and have that aha moment? Because I'm sure in the U.S., some some chord must have struck you, right? That you must have thought, okay, I have been trained and I love my traditional music and I want to do something about it. When was that moment when you realized? Well, there are a few, few moments. Uh, one of them is that first and foremost, the sense of kind of responsibility of our culture and our freedom struggle is bestowed upon us by our elders, you know. So wherever I go, there's this sense that we have to, you know, talk about Tibet and our culture, you know, uh, in the world. And in the 1990s, when I came to America, I had my personal kind of a story, you know, uh, difficulties and uh, some misfortune, things like that, you know. Mm. And... Uh, when you were really like kind of going through uh, difficult moments, that's when I, my singing and my voice kind of came out for me. Oh, okay. Yeah. And at the same time, um, there was a lot of uh, attention, a lot of uh, interest in Tibet in the 90s. You know, you might remember the movies like Seven Years in Tibet. Yes. And, and I was involved in the Tibetan Freedom concerts. Hmm. You know, it was hosted by the Beastie Boys and all the big bands and were really like working for Tibet and, you know, like promoting Tibetan freedom movement and things like that. And I got inspired by a lot of West, you know, American musicians, how audience respect them. So it all came around that time. Right, right. I think what you mentioned is so true. I think you've hit the nail on the head about... Um, using music as a way to express not just our happiness, but also our suffering. Uh, it could be a beautiful way of self-expression, right? And I'm glad you found your passion because now the world has such good music. So thank you for that. Um, our music has been such an integral part of who we are, right? As people. And, uh, Dating back to the times in Tibet when our nomads and farmers would sing um, the um, uh, chapters of the folklores and epics of Gesar of Ling, they would also dance and enact all the scenes. What is really fascinating here is the fact that most of them, the nomads and farmers, I believe, they were illiterate, right? And they would still remember all these chapters. So... Could you please enlighten our audiences a little bit about the history of music in Tibet? Well, the history of music in Tibet, we in the Himalayas and we in the high plateaus, you know, share a lot of uh, love for, uh, for music, for singing. And it's very much uh, integrated to the lifestyle, nomads, Everybody has a hard life, not easy life, you know, like especially the nomads, you know, they have to get up really early. Mm-hmm. And like in any society, I think you have to find your way to be happy in your, you know. Uh, in your Absolutely. Mm. And so they would, you know, Dharma, Buddhism was, of course, primary kind of source of inspiration. But 
music and dance has been before Buddhism came to Tibet. You know, there were uh, we were you know singing and dancing and for the nature, for the spirits, you know, for the protection to the sun, moon, gods, you know, land deities, water deities, you know, all of that. And when whenever because everybody wants uh, good harvest, you know, good weather for their farm, health you know, uh, protections and no disturbance, no earthquakes, no disasters, you know, things like that. So those days before Buddhism, all the rational thinking kind of uh, ideology came, people were really into spirits and song and dance was very much part of that, you know. Even though after uh, Buddhism came, things changed, you know, it all turns into like more kind of a, uh, you know, faith-based sort of, you know, music and things like that. But so... Uh, we do uh, have songs and dances for good harvest, marriage, uh, for traveling, you know, uh, for ceremonies and things like that. And in abundance, actually, when I was growing up in India, I talked with the elders and they would say, they, we would sing and dance whole night and we didn't want to go home. And uh- it's kind of like going to a party, but in different kind. You know, they were they have lots of stories about how they would enjoy. You know, and so, so Tibet. You know, as you you know, and a pretty vast country. You know, from Western Tibet to Eastern Tibet, uh, ceremonies and dances and music, uh, the dresses and things it differs quite a bit. You know, we have the unified language that we share, but otherwise, so Eastern Tibetans, they they have instruments that the Western Tibetans don't have, you know. Central Tibet has kind of a little bit more, more instrument, but vocalizing is most kind of popular you know, instrument. Mm. And then um, in the Western Tibet, there's uh, this ancient uh, kingdom called Shangshun, you know, before the, you know, kingdom that was, uh, I don't know, hundreds of years. They have... These uh, wall paintings where they do, uh, they call a dance called Shun, which is a very ancient uh, style of dancing. But everywhere we go, we do circle dance and, uh, you know, singing, mostly vocal dancing, foot stomping. Yeah. Yeah. And then the central Tibet, they are more vocalizing. And anyway, this pretty rich, you know, uh, not to say that, uh, you know, uh, uh, but we really like... uh, they they come, yeah, come with costumes and dresses and and it's all passed down as you said, family to family oral tradition you know. It is so intriguing because uh, you know I've uh, some of my uh, non-Tibetan friends ask me, do Tibetans sing and dance every single day? And it's like yeah, that's sometimes very common because I remember I mean being in exile, I've seen a lot of uh, you know families actually having their dinner and then staying outside. There is a bench that they have a common bench, right? We we have Tising, which is like a normal place where people are generally central hub spot of the settlement of each camp, right? So they would come out and when the electricity is gone, because in refugee settlements, you have this happening a lot. You sit down, you, you, you chat with them, you sing and dance. I say, yes, sometimes it's a common, common thing. So it's like, wow, you guys are always having a gala time. I said, yes, that's how you should be. You should enjoy your life. And singing mm-hmm. and dancing, as you very rightly mentioned, has been such an important part of our culture because 
you know, even before like the pre-Buddhist era, right? Uh, the Ben culture that we had, uh, you know, worshiping uh, different kinds of deities, nature deity, sometimes mountain deity. And then we mm-hmm. also have a local deity, right? Home deity. Yeah, so there's for the fire stove, like fire place, you know? Right, right. Yeah. And the yeah. water, water, and, you know? Yes. Spirit. Yes, yeah, so, so many, so many songs, so much variety. I don't think we'll ever, ever have like a, a situation where it's, oh, we run out of songs because we'll always have a song for every occasion. Mm-hmm. Uh, great. Now, um, I think you just got back from your field of research and music tour in West Africa, right? Uh, yes. That is uh, in Mali, Morocco and Senegal right? Uh, And you actually um, have become um, the first ever Tibetan to tour in these regions. And also, um, they were performed by a renowned, you know, you you have also performed in these, in the music festival, which was actually organized by a Grammy Award winner. I hope I'm pronouncing this right. Omo Sangare, right? Uh, an African diva. So please um, share a little bit about this with our audiences. Well, this tour was uh, very special because uh, it all came uh, because of my wife's interest in Africa. Actually, my wife's interest in cultures hmm. all around the world. My wife is from South America. Her name right. is Cecilia Salgado. And she had this dream. She had a dream to, you know, she traveled to Asia uh, South India, she even learned Indian Bharanatyam, you know, uh, studied, you know, from masters. And she had interest in Tibetan dance. She went to Dharamsala, this and that. And then she had this dream of going to Africa. And after we got together, she had the idea and uh, we pitched in the idea. We kind of uh, made it project. And so she organized basically all the trip was her idea. So I tag along and we were fortunate to meet some uh, renowned, you know, African musicians in Mali. As you said, Uma Sangari is a, still, she's still rocking in the world music kind of circle. She just had a concert in uh, Paris and we met with her. She invited us. We went in a really remote African and a festival. There were like 30 bands performing and they were very, very energetic. And the culture is very vibrant in terms of the art and music, you know, and very lovely people, you know, like I've never, my uh, most memorable thing is like, you know, we live in America or in India. We never have a, this kind of really close friendship, but there it was very open. And they were like, I was the international kind of performer, you know, mm. and I was singing. So I kind of, uh, uh, shared with them traditional songs and one or two of my own pieces and and give them a real taste of Tibetan music, you know. It's the Tibetan music that's kind of uh, uh, grown up in India, you know. It's not the original, I'm not, you know, we never lived in Tibet. uh, I am the Tibetan from India and America, you know, like, uh, but in any case, a lot of them have never heard of Tibet, you know, let alone hearing music. So, I kind of had the opportunity to open some kind of door, you know, cultural door, and make friends. And we visited small towns and uh, learned about their culture. You know, my wife was doing research in the dances and music. So I listened to them. And then she says, here's a Tibetan guy, you know, you can hear. And I just play my <laughs> instrument. They were like, so we have 
<clears throat> even though we really live far away, and but as you and I know, we are so much connected from hundreds of millions of years. And so some of the instruments that I play, they they have similar ones too, you know. Mm. And they were like fascinated, like, oh, we have this, like the piwang that we play. It's a, a the violin kind of play that mm. song uh, instrument, musical instrument that we play in Eastern Tibet. They have their own own kind of these instruments and and some kind of lutes and stuff like that and a lot of vocal singing dancing um so that tour uh, we did it for almost a month and a half and met uh, you know different musicians and so it was a very eye opening and also felt very close uh, i don't mm. know felt very connected to past you know so great that, that, yeah yeah that's that's fantastic i'm very happy to hear that because even if one single person you know you're able to maybe educate or spread awareness about tibet then the other person will tell the other person and that's how you know the awareness actually grows even more it expands right yeah. so music being such a wonderful way of because it's like if i'm talking to you yes it does spread awareness but if somebody's singing it you know if if somebody is doing it in the form of music i think it kind of stays you kind of have that memory of how the person was where was he from what was the music about then they will remember tibet so i think that's a very interesting way of spreading we, our know, culture we, uh, shared when we shared music it, hmm. i think it's a very uh, familiar territory yes yes exactly yeah yeah yes so you're on the yeah when we sing in music it's like very art and culture we're not into some kind of Exactly, and taking your minerals or you know your mm. like we we are not in business kind of thing. But so mm. that opening of uh, cultural ideas and friendship was a really good way to uh, open doors, you know, and new doors for us. And mm. and the musicians there also love to you know they are also aware listening to other cultures and music. So we had a. Uh, pretty hot, uh, pretty tough, you know, traveling, a lot of drivings and a lot of flights and all of that. But we had a really nice um, encounters, especially in Morocco. Such a beautiful landscape, uh, very, you know, all the caspa they call it castles and homes look like in Ladakh or in Tibet, you know, like oh. some of this. Uh, uh, and uh, the way of life, you know, much mm. they mm. still have that still going on, you know. Right. So, yeah, I can picture that as you're talking about it. Um, you've actually performed live opening acts for His Holiness the Fourteenth Dalai Lama um, at various public events globally. Right. Truth be told, this is such a precious opportunity. I think this is such a precious opportunity for anyone, whether it's Tibetan, anyone. Right. So. Please share a little bit about that because I'm sure that experience has been surreal for you. Has it? You know the His Holiness the Dalai Lama connection we of Tibetan artists in Dharamsala and His Holiness the Dalai Lama. We were actually from the same town. Mm-hmm. You know, oh, I tell okay. the Americans here, they will say, "Oh, really? Wow, that's amazing!" And it was, you know, when during the 1960s and 70s when our school was formed, His Holiness visits that school. Often, like because it was like only thirty minutes walk or mm. something like that, he would mm. come to the school, and those are the most difficult days. And that's where His Holiness was uh, 
free to roam around in Dharamsala, you know, with one or two bodyguards. Hmm. And uh, and even when I was at the school, he came maybe uh, three or four times, and I performed for him like uh, several times, you know, in the in the school itself. Especially when we made our first international tour uh, in the 1975 and 76, I was the youngest in performer, hmm. so we we uh, premiered to his ownness, you know. So it was kind of a very special tour because in those years, there was hardly any Tibetans have traveled across right. the world. So we were 24 artists, 23 or something. We went to Europe, we went to Australia, we went to USA, we went to Canada, and that tour was blessed by his ownness. And so I have this you know, long connection, but after when I came to United States, And opening for him is like another story because by then his holiness has become so well known around the world, thousands and thousands of people, and it's just like astonishing. Mm-hmm. And also a great opportunity, you know, because I can you know share something and uh, enjoy the, that beautiful moment with his holiness. So we are blessed, you know, that we have a wonderful leader and uh, that we 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 all have a some kind of something to hold on to in terms of our culture and our uh, struggle, you know, and somebody who inspires us daily to keep up and move on. True, true. How old were you when you first performed? Were you, because you enrolled when you were nine, but then when yes. you, when did you perform? When was like the first time when you, you know, you thought, oh, I'm, I'm so nervous. Did you feel nervous when it was your first time? I still feel nervous, right? Even today, you know, like yeah. whenever I have uh, concerts, uh, you mm-hmm. might know that I have a, a really big concert coming up in New York City on June 4th. I don't okay. know if you have noticed. That's going to be a very, very uh, special concert because I'm performing mm-hmm. strictly traditional classical music from Lhasa. Okay. And uh, so I get little n- nightmares, you know, about these things and... Uh, And I'm still very shy, but I just trust on my own uh, kind of mm. experience and stuff. So when I was young, um, the performing school in Dharamsala, if I can explain a little bit, as I mentioned, a lot of the performing uh, traditions are oral traditions. Even when we were learning that we had to, you know, uh, imitate, learn from the elders. And so, um, and then... There's a little bit of kind of structures and format, but like that. But um, uh, a lot of that is kind of... But so performing to the Tibetan community, we get used to it. And we get kicked out of... When we go out of Dharamsala, we go... <laughs> right. And that's when we feel like we are little celebrities, you know, like all the, the, the refugee camps who would be running and looking through the windows. And we were like, why are they so like interested in us? Because in Dharamsala, mm-hmm. we were like the underdogs, you know, nobody mm-hmm. really pays yeah. much attention. <laughs> and also not only that, the artists were not really respected like any other society, you know, mm-hmm. in, in Dharamsala. Like, oh, you know, there's no kind of future in the art and music and, you know, like that kind of stuff. So, but when we travel to South, you know, Tibetan settlements and that's where we get really energized and the monasteries would invite us for meals and treated us uh, as a celebrity. And that's, um, so I was kind of, when I was younger, not very nervous, but nowadays I do get a little bit nervous. And, uh, but anyway, yeah, you get used to it, you know. Okay. Songs and music, you know. I have seen your live performances. If that is you performing when you were nervous, imagine 
when you're not nervous, what do you do? So I, I have no words about this. And I think as humble musicians, a little bit of nervousness is so healthy because it keeps you in check with, you know, your, um, your craft. It keeps you rooted to your craft, right? And you feel connected. So it's a healthy nervousness, I would say. Um, and if you're having nightmares, I don't know why, because I don't see a reason why. Okay. I know you're going to do great. Um, <laughs> so, um, you have dedicated seven years to work on a project, which is actually a, uh, children's Tibetan children's music album. Actually the first one, um, it's called Sim Shit, right? Hard songs. Um, seven years. That's a really long time to dedicate to a project. What is your vision yeah. with this album? Well, the vision was that um, um, the Tibetan language, uh, especially for the younger children, you know, especially those who are growing up in West, in, hmm. in Western countries, the, it's very difficult to, you know, uh, empower them with our language because the English and the dominant language take, takes over. And I was researching on what to do about that. And I noticed how children here, the children have so many like uh, albums, methods, you know, to mm. teach them language. Mm. So you have to find a really um, playful method to teach, you know, your language. It's not only for Tibetans. Actually, in the West, all uh, immigrants, you know, like be Chinese or Indian, your own language, the kids really don't pay much attention. So that's the, my inspiration was so that I have to, you know, do something for these families. And in the West, as you know, now in India and everywhere, you know, you can't just make an album. Nowadays, mm -hmm. you have to, you know, go professional way. It means you have to pay for mm -hmm. people. And and so I started recording stuff. And then I figured out that this is, has to be done properly. So I then learned to fundraise and this and that. And, and it took a really long time. I don't know. It's like, you know, for some filmmakers, they will know about these things. You know, like mm -hmm. it's just... Mm -hmm. Music came quite easy for me, but we didn't have a industry, you know, where people would produce and there's no market and everything. So you have to kind of uh, uh, use all your, uh, learn to use uh, the ways to fundraise. And, you know, it basically it costs quite a lot of money to make the professional album because when I take it to a mass, you know, engineer and, you know, using studios and stuff, like, everything costs. So I learned to do some fundraising and then recording here and there and also went on on a tour, small tour to share my album. So I, I was proud that it, but it took a long time, it's even maybe more than seven years, but just, because I had the idea and then mm. implemented it. In the, in the West, as you know, unless you have a day job, you cannot do mm. But I spent a lot of time on my own thing. And so I was really right. struggling to do that. Right. So I learned a few things about, um, you know, uh, fundraising. And, you know, to be an artist nowadays, you really have to have a yeah. entrepreneurship, you know, because without it, you... you and when I was learning in uh, the art at that school in Narmsala, we were just purely artists you know, hmm. because we had a group uh, administration that would just do all the administration. Everything, so yeah. Bookings and then we just go and go on stage and go back to hotel and stuff like that. Here, I had to learn from the ground zero, you know, everything. So so that's where I kind of took it as a learning process, you know. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. We will continue our conversation with Dejung in the next episode 
which is part two of the series, we will not only get to know more about Fei Chung's incredible contribution to Tibetan music, but also take a deeper dive into really understanding our traditional music. I hope you enjoyed listening. Thank you so much for tuning in. If you like this episode, then please support this podcast by sharing it with your loved ones. You can give me a shout out and mention me in your Instagram stories and posts. My Instagram handle is Tenzin Chidin twenty four. That is T E N Z I N dot C H O D O N dot twenty four. To stay updated about waking up closer to Tibet podcast, don't forget to follow HD Smartcast on Facebook, Twitter, LinkedIn, and Instagram. To listen to more podcasts, log on to hdsmartcast.com or suno nay nazariyese. This was an HD Smartcast original. HD Smartcast.